a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Good morning again. Uh, if you weren't here earlier this morning when I do some, introduce myself, my name is not Michael Novak. My name is Derek McCollum. Uh, I'm the pastor of a church called Hope Presbyterian in New Braunfels, and Michael is there with my congregation this morning, and I get to be here with you. And we do that because we're good friends, and it encourages our hearts to see what God is doing in each other's churches. So every now and then, we swap places. And so thank you for allowing me to be here. It's really my pleasure to be with you this morning. We're going to look at a passage in the book of Colossians. So if you've got your Bible with you, you can open it up to Colossians or your phone. Or I'm, I'm still, still seems too weird to say open up your devices to Colossians, but you know, if that's what it is, great. Open your devices or your Bibles to Colossians. We're going to look at chapter one. Colossians is in the New Testament, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. The way I was taught to remember that was Gentiles eat pork chops, so I don't know. It's a little weird, but there it is. Uh, And we are in, truly and honestly, one of the greatest passages in the entire Bible. Uh, This is one of the most highly elevated proclamations of who Jesus is in all of the scriptures. So let me just say, if you are here this morning and you are trying to figure out who Jesus is, if you are investigating, if you're not totally sure, man, you're in the right place, because this is the passage to dive into. So we'll look at Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Let me read now to us from God's Word. He, and that he is the beloved Son, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's word. He's given it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for your word this morning. Thank you that you are a God who reveals not a God who hides. Lord, reveal yourself to us today. Open our ears. Open our eyes. Soften our hearts. That we might see you and see Jesus. And that in seeing Jesus, we might love him. And that in loving him, we might follow him. We pray that you would do this, Lord, today by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, this is uh, really one of the places 
where the church for centuries has gone to ask that question, who is Jesus and what has he done? Who has Jesus and what has he done? He, this is a place where oftentimes I might take a new Christian. We might walk through the Bible and land here in this place when we get to dig in so deeply to figuring out who is Jesus in this incredible, elevated, and glorious language. Well, there's actually evidence that the Apostle Paul might actually be doing the same thing, and here's what I mean by that, is that a lot of scholars think that, that Paul is using some traditional language maybe a creed or a hymn that he's drawing on, that he's reminding them of these great things that they already know about who Jesus is. Now, you know, hymns, you've already sung a couple of them here this morning. We know what hymns do. They, they dig deep into our hearts the wonderful truth that maybe we know in our heads, but we need to transfer down from our heads to our hearts. So they establish within us these great truths. And hymns sometimes, of course, can be set to musical settings like we sing them. We're not totally sure, first of all, that this is Paul using traditional language, and we're not totally sure if this hymn, if it's a hymn, has a musical setting or not, but I'm going to take a little creative license, and we're going to think about this whole passage like a song. We're going to think about this like a song, but kind of like a pop song today, okay? So we're going to think about this like a song with a big chorus and some verses that go along with that chorus, so if we're thinking about this passage, this great description of who Jesus is and what he's done, if we're thinking about it like a song, let's start with our chorus. What's the chorus that the Bible proclaims to us here about Jesus? Well, here it is. Jesus is a supreme and sufficient Savior. That's the chorus. That's the one you're going to belt in your car when you don't think anybody's watching that's the one that even maybe though you don't know all the words to the song, you catch that one, right? And you sing it over and over and you remember it and you're singing it in the shower and you sing it when you walk. Jesus is a supreme and a sufficient savior. That's what we wanna keep in the back of our heads all through this song this morning. But let's move on to verse one. We've set our chorus, Jesus is a supreme and sufficient savior. What's verse one? Well, verse one really is kind of focusing on that word supreme, on supremacy. We actually find it in the first verse that we read in our text. And really, it's settling in on the word first. Listen to verse 15 again. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What in the world does that mean that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation? Well, let's start with what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Jesus was the first thing created. Maybe you've had even a Jehovah's Witness come to your door, and oftentimes they will use this passage to say, you see here, Jesus isn't actually divine. He's created. He's just the best thing that God created. Well, the JWs are actually pulling from a very old heresy started by a guy named Arius in the fourth century who said just that. He said, listen, Jesus wasn't divine. He wasn't the creator of all things. He was created by God, and so he's great in all, but he's not God. Well, the church, like they do every now and then over the centuries, all got together and combated this heresy and all decided what it is that we believe about who Jesus is. And so the Council of Nicaea in 325 got together and they proclaimed these great words that that actually we now say in the Nicene Creed that Jesus is one in substance with the Father, that he is very God of very God, by whom all things were made. 
We should be really thankful for these guys in 325 because they really clarified to us who Jesus is. He's not a created being. He is the creator of all. Of course, it's not just you know, the creeds that we're relying on. The Bible actually says this over and over. In fact, if you look at the way that that word firstborn is said just in the next couple of verses, that Jesus is the firstborn also from the dead, well, it doesn't mean that he was the first to die because he wasn't. It also doesn't mean he was the first to be raised from the dead because he wasn't. He himself raised Lazarus from the dead. So firstborn has to mean something different here. And throughout the Bible, actually, the Bible uses even this language to talk about both God's people and the Messiah. In Exodus, God calls his people, my firstborn. In Psalm 89, David says, God says actually of David and of the Davidic line and of the Messiah, he's my firstborn. And there's a reason for that, is that because in both Hebrew and in Greek culture, the firstborn in the family was the one who was going to inherit all of the inheritance. The firstborn was the one who had primacy. The firstborn kind of had the double honor. The firstborn was really given the primary position. So what Paul is saying here about Jesus is not that he was born first, but that he is, as he says here, preeminent, that he is primary, that he is first. It is helpful, I think, to pause just for a second and just think, do we see Jesus as primary in our lives? Is he the most important thing? Is he first in all that we do and think? Is he primary? Remember our chorus? Jesus is a supreme, supreme and sufficient savior. Let's go to verse two. It's actually also about that supremacy and we're focusing in on a different word here. Look again at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God Listen, I don't know if that sounded weird when I first read it or even when I just read it now, but that's a weird irony. He is the image of the invisible God. You, how do you have an image of something that's invisible? That's part of what it means to be invisible is that there's no image, right? Well, that's actually Paul's point is that Jesus reveals to us something that would otherwise be unrevealed. That Jesus shows us who God is. If you don't get anything else from this part, just listen to this. Jesus shows us who God is. So if you want to understand God, you can't understand God until you understand Jesus. If you want to see God, you cannot see God until you look at Jesus. If you want to know God, you cannot know God fully until you know Jesus. He is the one through whom we actually understand the Father. And this is super important in the culture in which Paul is writing here in Galatia. I'm sorry, in Colossae. Because in this little small church, by the way, this is a church plant uh, full of, you know, it's, it's about probably like four or five years old. Um, and and they, are, they live in a culture where uh, they're being told that you can't just know God through one thing, right? You have, kind of have to have a bunch of other stuff that kind of combines in there. Rainy bells, they're a lot like us. So there was a heresy actually in this church that was saying, yeah, great, Jesus is fine and all. But really, you need to kind of add some other stuff if you really want to know who God is. Maybe that's kind of some, some, some Jewish law keeping that we need to add that in. And you can't be a real Christian unless you're really Jewish. Or maybe that was some Greek mysticism. And let's add that in. And you can't be a real Christian unless you're also adding in this kind of Greek mysticism. And Paul's really his main point throughout this whole letter is that Jesus plus anything else equals nothing. 
and that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so it was really helpful for them to hear this, is that if you really want to know God, you have to know Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's really helpful for us too, friends. We live in a time in which spirituality is pretty popular and Christianity is pretty unpopular. And this idea that I can know God, I can connect with God simply on a walk through the woods, and that's really all I need. Or I can know God by, by reading multiple religious texts and kind of synthesizing them all together, and that's really what I need. Or I can know God just by studying science, or I can know God by studying philosophy. And friends, of course, God has created all of those things. He is the Lord over all of them. But if you want to know God, Paul is saying here, you have to actually look through the lenses of who Jesus is. But there's another thing going on here that I think is pretty fascinating. Maybe you picked up on it when I was reading. Maybe you picked up on it when we were reading those other passages earlier. This idea that he is the image of the invisible God. You heard John 1 read earlier, connecting Jesus to creation, all things made through him. You heard us read Genesis 1, where the high point of that passage was that mankind, man and woman, were made in what? The image of God. And if mankind was made in the image of God, and Jesus is the image of the invisible God, then listen how mind-blowing this is, is that in some way he is the original image after which humanity was created. That just kind of blows my mind. That Jesus, in some way, the eternal beloved son, pre-incarnate even, is the image after which God creates mankind, creates humanity. Or said another way, before Jesus became one of us, we became one of him. Isn't that amazing? And of course, it gets even deeper here because not only are we to know God through knowing Jesus, but now we can know ourselves and we can really only know ourselves if we know Jesus because he is the image after we are created or we are the created after his image. But of course, because he is the one through whom all things were created, all of creation, and because it all belongs to him, If we want to even understand the world that we live in, we have to know Jesus. So you have this incredible, fully-orbed presentation of who Jesus is, the lens that we look through to understand God and ourselves and our world. Think about a master painter, and he's painting a beautiful portrait. And so oftentimes the master painter will have a subject here, a model, and he's using that model to paint this beautiful portrait. And I think Paul is saying here that Jesus is the model after which all of creation is fashioned. Of course, the illustration breaks down because it can't hold this whole passage because Jesus is the model and he is the painter and he's the one it's commissioned for and he's the owner of it all, right? He is a supreme and sufficient Savior. Verse 3, we get to actually focus a little bit more on that second word, sufficient. And I'm just going to ask you to just sit back and listen. If you've got your Bible, you can read it, but it's actually probably better if we just sit back and listen for a second. Let me, let me read again this passage and see if you pick up on any uh, repeated words or themes. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him 
all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And the word all is all over that passage. You just get the sense by just the words that Paul uses here of the fullness, of the robustness of Jesus, of how just expansive and incredible his reign and rule is. There are plenty of things that we could say about this, but let me just say one little thing. If Jesus really is all, and if what we're saying is that Jesus plus nothing equals everything, then one really simple application we can draw is that we don't need to go looking for other stuff. Jesus is sufficient. He fulfills. He's all we need. I've been in kind of digging into this, this, this concept lately. Uh, it's, a, it's a psychological term called, uh, well, it's a psychological term really called chronic anxiety. Maybe Michael has even talked about this a little bit. It's a little different from the way that we oftentimes think of anxiety. We think of anxiety kind of like, I'm super nervous about this test, or I get nervous when I speak in front of people. Chronic anxiety is a little bit different. And I've learned a lot from a pastor and author named Steve Cuss, and this is the way that he defines chronic anxiety. He said, chronic anxiety is a a false belief. It's believing that you need something in your life, and then when you're not getting that thing, your anxiety rises, right? So, So I think I have a false belief that I need to get something, and then when that thing is threatened or when it doesn't come, my anxiety rises and I start working to get that thing first and foremost. For instance, let's say I'm going to walk into a meeting with people around. And I have just this general sense that these are people I've kind of disappointed before. Kind of going around the room in my head. I've kind of let this person down in the past. This person doesn't have the greatest opinion of me. This person, I just don't know what they think of me. So my thinking starts to become, wow, my anxiety rises because I'm not getting the thing that I think I need, which is everybody needs to be really impressed with me. Everybody needs to be really happy with me. Everybody needs to feel really great about me. And I feel like that thing is threatened. So what do I do? Well, my anxiety increases and I start doing whatever I can to get that thing that I want. I somehow subtly manipulate. I present what I need to present in a way that makes them not get what I want them to get, but like me more. That's my anxiety actually taking over in that way. Or my child starts to act out. And it triggers anxiety in me that thinks, oh no, I really want the people around me, my neighbors and my friends, to think I'm a really great parent. And if they start seeing the way that my child acts, they're really not, they're really not going to think that I'm a great parent. So then I start helicoptering managing, doing everything I can to make my kid look as good as he can so that the parents, the other parents, think I'm a really great parent. That's my anxiety rising and me responding to my anxiety. But friends, if Jesus is a sufficient Savior, then he gives us what we need, and we don't have to go searching for more. And the beautiful process of this isn't, of course, to just deny all those things, but to actually realize Look at what my heart tends toward. Look at what my heart is clinging to. I don't need those things. And I don't need those things because Jesus is all. And I can walk into the meeting and I can actually ask the question, what is God doing here? Rather than ask the question, how do I get all these people to like me? 
Because, as my counselor likes to tell me, when I am living in my belovedness, when I know who Jesus is and what he's done with me, I have nothing to prove, nothing to gain, and nothing to lose. Because Jesus is a sufficient Savior. Now, maybe you are kind of sitting there thinking, um, great, preacher. Uh, That sounds good and all. Sunday school words, blah, blah, blah. But really... I don't know what to do with all this, you know, and I, and I open up Colossians and he addresses this to uh, the saints and the faithful brothers at Colossae. And you know what? I don't feel like a saint. I don't feel like I'm really in the family half the time. And I definitely don't feel faithful. And I get it, all that anxiety stuff. But you know what? When I'm honest with myself, it's usually the anxiety that wins. It's usually the thing that has kind of overcome me. So what about people like me? What do we do with it? Well, if that's you, I have good news for you this morning. Look at verse 21. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The good news in Christian terms always comes with bad news attached to it. And the bad news is all of those feelings you have are really probably right. (laughs) In fact, it's even worse. It's not just that you are kind of stumbling around a little bit, but actually according to the Bible, uh, you are alienated and hostile in mind without Jesus. The picture of non-Christians in the Bible is not those who are wandering around looking for the truth, but really those who are running as fast as they can away from it. And the picture, of course, of Jesus in the Bible is the one who chases them down and wins them over by his love. Just look at the way that Paul says that you who were hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. (laughs) You who were hostile are now holy. Those who were belligerent are now blameless. Those who were antagonistic toward God are now above reproach. This has been the proclamation that the church for centuries has called the gospel, the good news. And it is really good news that people who have run away from God have been run down and tracked down and won back by his love. Friends, we are those who are hostile. If, the, if you are a Christian, this is your story. You are hostile and Jesus made you holy. You are belligerent and Jesus made you blameless. You were antagonistic, and Jesus made you above reproach, and that is really good news. Somebody please say amen, Amen. (laughs) because that is the heart of the gospel. It's the reason why we're here this morning. It's why you showed up on a Sunday morning when you could be doing lots of other things. It's because we have a supreme and sufficient Savior. So what do we do about it? How do we respond? Well, let me address two types of people here. First of all, if you were that person that I addressed at the beginning, if you are exploring Christianity, if you're not sure, if you've kind of been dancing around the edges, man, this is an invitation to you. Come and join the party. This is an amazing person, Jesus. Take a look at him. Study him. See his supremacy. See his sufficiency. See his love and his grace and his mercy that is being extended to you. Secondly, maybe you're somebody who's saying, I believe it. I believe it, pastor. I know it up here, 
but it's just so hard in here. It's so hard in the midst of the daily grind and the struggle. And you know what? What I usually want to do is just kind of push it aside and make it less important or shoot, maybe even just kind of start to fade away. Let me draw your attention actually to the way that Paul ends this passage. 22, he says, in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach. And then in 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. I'm not going to dig too deeply into this, but uh, in the Greek language in which it was originally written, that if, which is a scary word for us, is actually probably a little softer, a little more welcoming, a little more gentle than it sounds in English. But I'm also going to say it's probably also a little more firm than you want it to be. (laughs) Because what Paul says here is something really stark. Eugene Peterson in the the message, his translation is what he says is, is he's, you know, you can't run away from a gift this good. And that's really what Paul is saying. Here's the gift. Why would you ever leave it? Why would you ever let go? Why would you ever run away? Why would you ever do anything other than run as fast as you can can, to cling as tightly as you can to follow Jesus as closely as you can? A friend of mine uh, told me a story the other day. Um, He said, you know, imagine imagine you're you're in a movie theater. Let's just say it's a a superhero movie. Let's say it's a Spider-Man movie, Okay. So you are going to see the new whatever, you know, seven, Spider-Man 67, whatever it is, right? And you're going to be in this Spider-Man movie, and something is definitely going to happen in the midst of the Spider-Man movie, because it always happens in a Spider-Man movie, which is at some point in the movie, Spider-Man's going to be in real trouble. And he's going to be in danger, and he's going to be like hanging off a cliff, and it's going to look like Spider-Man's going to die. Or he's going to be, you know, taped to a chair, sitting in the corner somewhere with a bomb in the other corner. Or, you know, it's going to be either you save your life, Spider-Man, or we take the lives of all the people you love, right? And it's going to be this dilemma. And everybody's going to be, you know, tense, and they're going to be digging their fingernails into the seats at the theater, and they're going to be sitting on the edge of their seats. And think about if you're at that point in time in the Spider-Man movie at the highest point of tension where it looks like everything's going to go bad, and you said, I guess we'll go home. I mean, Spider-Man's going to die, right? What a, what a crummy movie. And you packed it up. You called it a day. Let's go home and eat dinner. You'd never do that. Because there's one, there's one thing that you know when you buy a ticket to a Spider-Man movie, it's that Spider-Man's not going to die. Because they need to keep making Spider-Man movies. This is the one thing that you know is that Spider-Man is the hero and it's going to end well. So you would never leave in the middle of the movie because A, the movie's not over, and B, you know who's going to win. That's what Paul's saying right here. Don't leave. That would be the most crazy and foolish thing in the world you could do because A, the story's not over, and B, we know who's going to win. It's Jesus, the supreme and sufficient Savior. He is the one worth lifting up higher than anything else in our lives. He's the, worth tur- he's the one worth turning to in the moments of our highest anxiety. He is the one worth clinging to most tightly and following most closely. Let's pray that God enables us to do that even now. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, 
Boy, thank you for these words. Thank you that you have given us this beautiful picture of who Jesus is. And it is easy, even for people like me who get paid for this stuff, to gloss over it and to kind of get a little bit of excited of it and then to move on. Lord, I pray that you would let it sit with us, that we might really know your supremacy, that we might really know your fullness, that we might really turn to you and follow you with our whole hearts. I pray that you would enable us to do that even today. In Jesus' name, amen.